Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world that we may I'm privileged to have as my guest today for Spirit in Action, a truly inspirational folk singer and activist, Charlie King. He's got a few decades of singing for the movement under his belt, everything from anti-war to pro-union to anti-capital punishment and far beyond these. I count at least 18 albums that Charlie King has released, sometimes solo, sometimes accompanied by other musicians. He's led the songs that have inspired so many activists and been part of making so many needed and important changes happen. So many of us have benefited from his songs and work. Unlike many singers to the far left of center, Charlie King is a lifelong Catholic, though perhaps not in the stereotyped manner that many liberals might imagine. With his Jewish partner, Karen Brandau, they inject vibrant spiritual energy into the good work of peace and justice. Charlie King joins us now by phone from Massachusetts. Charlie, I'm so happy you could join me today for Spirit in Action. Great to be here. And it's great to have a great musical activist. You've been doing it for decades, trying to bring out something good in this world through your music. Is this a conscious decision on your part? I mean, did you say, I want to make a difference in the world and this is how I could do it? I think music kind of provided its own answer for me. I was watching this recent documentary, The Power of Song, The Life of Pete Seeger, the other day, and Joan Baez was talking about how Pete had created this template that folk songs were to be used to try to make the world a better place. So I grew up on folk songs, and I eventually, gradually got the message of political change as being inherent in the medium of folk music, the songs of the civil rights movement, the songs of the labor movement, and then more appropriate for me, because I sort of came of age politically in the late 1960s, the songs of the anti-war movement. Singing was a given for me. It was something I'd done from my very earliest childhood, something I loved to do. And when I discovered folk music, then I slowly learned that the songs that want to make the world a better place, you know, to sort of use Pete's model, came with the territory. And then when I needed them, when I found myself in conflict with the draft and the U.S. government because I didn't want to go and fight and kill and die in Vietnam, then 
those songs were there not just as an expression but also as a, as a, as a kind of form of support and I just took my place in line and started singing them and eventually started writing them. Does that mean that when you were working on the campaign for Barry Goldwater back in 64, did you write any songs for him? I didn't, but it's a good starting point for a couple of reasons. One is that even though my earliest political orientation was anti-communism, it was always placed in a context of spirituality or religion or morality, so that my spirituality and my political activity were early and always linked together. When music became more and more accessible to me, I used it towards that end. Well, you've been going around calling attention to problems, calling attention to things about our system that need to be improved, that'll make us a better country. And you've certainly met a lot of good people doing the work along the way. You mention in your song, News, Blues, and People, you mention one of the people I think I know. You said Julie in Milwaukee. Yeah. Uh, peace action. Julie Enslow, is that her That's name? correct. Good, good job. I used to live there, and so I certainly knew of her. Tell me about the genesis of this song. This is actually a second generation of peace and justice activists. I, I guess the genesis for it is I find that the news of the world can be very depressing, that the way the news is reported in our culture is very distorted, and that if I only relied on that as my window on the world, I would be a pretty depressed person. But I have this privileged life to travel around and meet a lot of people who are spending their lives working for a better world, like Julianne Flo. And so I kind of go back and forth between these poles of despair at some of the harsh realities of violence and injustice in the world and euphoria at seeing how many people are trying to resist the violence and create a better way of living. And that's that sort of the nexus that generated this song. A very essential part of what I'm doing here is Northern Spirit Radio and with Spirit in Action is attempt to get the news out. And, of course, Charlie King, he gets the news out stage to stage and good song to share some of the good news of many people doing good work in our country is News, Blues, and People. It's second edition, and he's my guest here today for Spirit in Action. Each morning on the road I read the paper And with every line I feel my spirits sink Unemployment increase, murder in the Middle East Homeland insecurity, suspending civil liberties Landmark legislation in the nation makes a criminal to think Each headline highlights one more crooked caper and each byline boasts of one more sordid scheme. If Bush gets into one more war, I'm getting out. If Congress passes one more fascist act, I'm gonna scream. Feels like everything is falling apart at the seams. Do you know what I mean? But then I go and see Julie up in Milwaukee, a peace action devotee. Or Pat and Bernie, San Francisco, California, singing their hearts out for solidarity. I remember Tom Wilson and Juanita Nelson and the war tax they refused. 
not so much better than I'm ready for the five o'clock news. Oh no. The anchor man resembles Robert Redford. His sidekick looks like Chelsea Clinton's mom. She reports compellingly on a local spelling bee. Tune in at 11 because they're revving up for coverage of a prom. It's a sitcom. The weatherman's one-liners make my head hurt. And the local team's been given up for dead. The film reviewer interviews a chimp. I'm getting out. The prom reporter's voting for their queen. I'm going to bed. If you tuned in for the news, you've been badly misled. Now it's back to you, Ted. I want to hear about Rebecca, Jeff, and Martha marching in Ann Arbor. Mike and Sue tearing up Toledo. They don't cover Chris and Seda, Francisco y Anita, El Pueblo, Unido, Hamas that I've been Or Father Roy Bourgeois, Columbus, Georgia, shutting down the SOA. If you believe the TV, you think democracy is slipping away. I got something to say. say we it. still got Wash and Kosh, Philipash, Connecticut, fight for worker safety and health. United for a fair economy is challenging monopoly and trying to spread around a little corporate wealth. There's a peace demonstration in every nation. Twenty million marchers can't be wrong. So let's keep on fighting the good fight, people. Let's keep singing our song. You won't read it in the paper, won't see it on the news, but you just might hear it in a talking blues. Thanks for the energy keeping me singing these songs. That certainly is fun. I'm glad we've got you to bring us the news, Charlie King. You mentioned working with Barry Goldwater for president, and somewhere between 1964 In 1967, you clearly identified yourself as anti-war. Was there a tipping point moment that you can remember? Well, I think the environment had a lot to do with leaving home, graduating from high school, going not to a radical campus, actually quite a conservative campus in the Midwest, but meeting different people and getting out from underneath the shadow of my father's very strong political convictions. So it became a place where I had a little bit more elbow room to define myself politically. So that was the atmosphere. I think two things I would point to as tipping points. One was that at this particular school, every freshman and sophomore was required to enroll in ROTC. So I was studying military training, which, given my politics and my background, was fine with me. But I was really kind of shocked by what we were studying. And I, I specifically remember studying a unit on the military value of bombing civilians. And I remember going into class, and I remember, you know, I'm, I'm a good status quo right-wing Catholic boy at a Jesuit school, and I put up my hand and I said to the instructor, I said, are we talking about the Nazis here, or are we talking about the United States? And he said, oh, we're definitely talking about the United States. We're talking about any, any army. We all realize the demoralizing value of bombing civilians. And even though I knew I was patriotic and I knew I supported the military mission of the United States and I knew that it was important to fight communism, there was something that just didn't sit right with me at all about bombing men, women, and children. So that was an aha moment. And I decided then and there that I wouldn't go to ROTC classes anymore. It was kind of one of my first self-defining moments. 
and it was a fairly serious decision because you couldn't graduate from this college without two years of military training. And then I think following fairly rapidly on the heels of that was picking up a leaflet, maybe it was put out by the American Friends Service Committee, that was talking about the human cost of the war in Vietnam, and it described the woman who was caring for her husband who had been the victim of a napalm attack and had been burned over most of his body. That was very sobering and, and had a big emotional and conscientious impact on me. And I think that was really the beginning of my journey to become a conscientious objector and pretty much a lifelong opponent of war. And did this bring up walls between you and your home you came from? I mean, the Catholic Church or your father? I mean, I'm assuming he was Catholic. Did this start building walls between you and the homestead? Yeah, it did. It was very divisive between my dad and I, although I think he did as best he could to be understanding about it, but he argued with me. Uh, he invited some priests that he knew to come in and argue with me and try to change my mind. And I realized at some point along the line that in addition to being angry and disagreeing with me, that he also was kind of fearful about it. He had ambitions for my younger brother to go to the Air Force Academy if he could get an appointment. And he was fearful that perhaps that would be jeopardized by my becoming a CEO, or perhaps his business would suffer, or my ability to ever have a career would suffer. And so there were a lot of factors involved, but it, it did create anger and distance between us. It's clear to me that you came from a position where I think you identified yourself as an anti-communist. And all of a sudden, I don't think you're feeling so negatively about the people on the other side of the Iron Curtain. How did you feel when the Berlin Wall came down? I thought it was a great cause for celebration. I think we all are eager to own victories, to claim victories. And my perspective on the fall of the Berlin Wall was that it was brought about by the nonviolent direct action of political activists in, primarily in East Germany. So I saw it as a victory for nonviolence. What disturbed me about it was the way people in power in the United States, people who identified with militarism, people who identified with the kind of economic imperialism that's part of U.S. policy, were claiming the fall of the wall as a victory for them. And as if they had torn down the wall in Germany as a celebration of American politics, I heard a speech by the head of the Chamber of Commerce in Dallas, Texas, and he was holding up a piece of the Berlin Wall and claiming victory for the American way of life. And I, I just was so aware of how many walls surrounded and isolated and protected and enriched the president of the Chamber of Commerce of Dallas, Texas, that I decided that I wanted to write a song about some different walls that needed to come down now that the Berlin Wall was down. Let's listen to that song, and maybe we can say a little bit more about it afterwards. The song is called There Is a Wall, and it's from Charlie King's album, Two Good Arms. There is a wall, and it's the tallest wall of all. They named a street for it, where numbers roll and eyes go black. A wall of gold, they buy the future with the past. They call it work, just feels like money 
in the bank and way down at the foot of that wall where the guards can barely see her at all. A woman is standing, not asking, not demanding. A poor woman is standing with a hammer in her hand. Don't you want a piece of that wall when it comes down? Don't you want to live to see it fall when it comes round? When that wall is gone, no matter which side you were on, can you say you took a piece of that wall down? Don't you want a piece of that wall? There is a wall, and it's the meanest wall of all. Stretched from my doorstep straight back to 1492. It hides the ovens, it hides the settlements, the homelands, pink triangles, passbooks, shackles, and tattoos. And way down at the foot of that wall, where the gods. And barely see him at all. An old man is standing, not asking, not demanding. An old black man is standing with a hammer in his hand. Don't you want a piece of that wall when it comes down? Don't you want to live to see it fall when it comes round? When that wall is gone, no matter which side you were on, can you say you took a piece of that wall down? Don't you want a piece of that wall? There is a wall, and it's the oldest wall of all—a wall of fear, holds danger out. Desire in a wall that bristles. Each time the warden brings back tales. Inside we're starving to buy the bricks, to build the cells, to bury love, to bar the door, to ban the stranger. And way down at the foot of that wall, where the gods. And barely see at all. A stranger is standing, not asking, not demanding. A stranger is standing with a hammer for your hand. Don't you want a piece of that wall when it comes down? Don't you want to live to see it fall? When it comes around, when that wall is gone, no matter which side you were on, can you say you took a piece of that wall down? Don't you want a piece of that wall? There is a wall, and we're talking about taking down some of the walls that hurt 
people, hurt our societies. Have you participated in taking down any particular walls that you're proud of to have had a piece of their descent? I am actually thinking as we're talking about physical walls, thinking about the wall between Israelis and Palestinians. I'm thinking about the wall that we're building on our own southern border to prevent people coming into this country from Central America and South America. I haven't taken a piece of those walls down. I have been able to change myself, and I think that a lot of divisive walls that we're just part of growing up in the 1950s in America. You know, you've already mentioned how anti-communism didn't really sustain itself as an ideology for me that I came to know and respect people who were on the other side of that wall, the civil rights movement and other liberation movements. Think about gay and lesbian liberation movements have really kind of challenged a lot of the narrow notions that I grew up with. And every time I challenge a prejudice in myself, and every time I write a song about that, then I think uh, I do take down a piece of the wall that might be there in my own consciousness, and then the song becomes an invitation for other people to see that process going on and maybe uh, look at the walls in their own lives. You've written a song called Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which is really about taking down those walls. Did you have to confront homophobia in yourself before you could get around to writing a song like that? Well, I'm pleased to report that my background was so conservative, I didn't even know enough to be homophobic. <laughs> uh, actually, when I went away to college, I declared my major as classics. I was a Latin and Greek major. That didn't last too long, but it was, lasted long enough that I was handpicked to be the roommate for the only other Latin and Greek major in my freshman class, a fellow named Howard Seegers. Howard was a political activist from Alabama. He had been active in the civil rights movement, and Howard was gay, and pretty open about it, too. I have to laugh at myself because it was only about a year later that I finally understood what that was all about. <laughs> I just came into it from a position of ignorance. The good news is that when I finally did begin to understand a little bit about homosexuality, my reference point was my best friend in the world, Howard Seegers. Howard was a big part of my understanding that whatever people's sexual preference was, they were people first, and you judge people not... A, I mean, I don't hardly judge anyone on their sexual behavior because I don't hardly know what anyone is, is up to sexually but I learned from Howard that I don't allow a label to be used to dismiss someone who's obviously such a valuable person in the world. Well, the song you wrote about it is called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. That comes from the Clinton era, doesn't it? Yeah, it was specifically written in response to the early Clinton presidency, and it's the lesson that I think we'll learn over and over again, which is that presidential candidates make a lot of promises, and very often they don't deliver on them. Clinton and Gore had gotten support from gays and lesbians because they said that they would support gay rights, and specifically that they would support gay rights within the military. Then when Clinton was elected president and he was asked to deliver on that promise, what he came up with was that very sorry policy of don't ask, don't tell. That phrase seemed very important to me, you know, because I knew that there was nothing supportive or healthy or progressive 
about that phrase, that that was policy, that was a personal sellout. When we were talking during the taping of Song of the Soul, you had mentioned that I wrote songs about real people that I had encountered or had read about. And this is one of the early songs that I wrote that was about fictional characters. I created the characters in this song. I don't often do that. I usually write about people who are living and breathing and walking around are historical figures. But uh, I created these two characters, Wayne and Wanda, as a way of looking at the impact of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and, and how the ways in which gays and lesbians could respond to it. Wayne was a bashful kid, grew up on Nashville, dreamed of the smoky old west. His dad's a straight shooter, told Wayne a recruiter would help him put hair on his chest. Signed up for Fort Benning, he liked all the men. He made friends with a shake and a grin. Met the men he liked most at a bar off the post. It's the first place Wayne ever fit in. But the neon sign over the bar Hung under the howitzer shell Flashed the saddest words Wayne ever saw Don't ask, don't tell Wanda could flaunt it Knew just what she wanted Got started in ROTC I'd did all the men outrank half of Fort Benning I'd spoken outrageous and free Night was her cover She'd waltz her wild lovers Out under the big Georgia moon But tonight it was raining And she ran into Wayne In the heart of that same old saloon And the neon sign over the bar Hung under the howitzer shell Flashed the saddest words they ever saw Don't ask, don't tell Wayne mumbles howdy, she says Hello cowboy, I don't believe we've met before Wayne's new in the service He gulps his drink nervously Keeping one eye on the door She says, it's no crime here Is this your first time here? He raises his glass to the sign She says, everyone in here's got their own opinion Now you're gonna listen to mine what I read in that sign is a forward prescription for life in your own private hell. It's the great compromise. They say wear a disguise and everything's gonna be swell. I say you're only as sick as your secret. Only the truth sets you free. And you're only alone till you speak it. Ask me, tell me, 
Wayne smiles at Wanda, then flags the bartender. Wanda says, this one's on me. This sits off in stories, old guilt and old glory, old secrets and old memories. They plan their attack, Wanda covers his back, while Wayne pulls the plug on the sack. As they walk across the parking lot, rain finally starts to stop. Big old moon starting to shine. Oh, you're only as sick as your secret. Only the truth sets you free. You're only alone till you speak it. Ask me. Tell me. Yeah, you're only alone till Ask me, tell me. That was Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Charlie King's song. What are some of the other political concerns that you've been applying your spirit to? What are the other top two or three that you've been involved in? Well, both Karen and I have for quite a long time been involved with something called the Journey of Hope, which is, I guess I'd call it a a pilgrimage that happens on the average of once a year. Murder victims' family members organize this pilgrimage to speak out against the death penalty. These are people who've lost a family member or a loved one or a close friend to a violent crime and have gone through the very seductive judicial process that says we will give you a sense of relief and closure for your grief and anger by executing the person that did this tremendous damage to your lives. And they find themselves drawn into that system and they find themselves bankrupt as a result because they're not healed by it and because it becomes a cheap substitute for what they really need, which is meaningful support, counseling, advocacy friendship, love, financial support while their lives are shattered, things like that. And so Karen and I have been working with the journey to try to end the barbaric practice of capital punishment here in the United States. It's a very seductive policy. It's very difficult politically not to support the death penalty because it has been put out in America as a way to make people safe. There are a lot of people in America who are getting either politically successful or or financially successful or both by promising people safety and security. They have not been able to deliver that, but you know, you just keep saying, if you want to be safe, support the death penalty. If you want to be safe, support military spending. If you want to be safe, support homeland security. And so America is not a society that is free of violence, even though we've been executing people for 20 years and more since the Supreme Court decision, death penalty does not reduce the level of violence in society. Uh, As a matter of fact, usually in the wake of an execution, there's a spike in violent crime. So although politicians pander and the people that profit from prison and war and capital punishment lobby doesn't deliver what it promises, which is some kind of 
safety and reduction of violence. Let's listen to your song, Charlie. It's Who Will Be Next on the Gallows, and it's by Charlie King. I think I'd just like to mention statistically that here was an execution that was publicized and broadcast around the world, and in the week following the hanging of Saddam Hussein, which is the starting point of this song, over a hundred men, women, and children died from hanging in a way that was directly related to the hanging of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein is falling through space With a prayer on his lips and fear in his face Deep in the green zone they savor sweet release In mortal defiance he drops through the air While soldiers like pit bulls baiting a bear Make him by contrast the hero of the peace The White House can claim one more mission complete Iraqis in Michigan dance in the street Shiites in Baghdad are lynched eyes for The body count surges, the war plunders on While they look for a leader who's ruthless and strong Like the one they just hung, which begs the question, why? Why do we never grow weary of this? Condemned by the world or betrayed by a or innocent hit or miss and who will be next on the gallows from bunk beds and ceiling fans rafters and shelves copycat children are hanging themselves as if it's a game watch Without judgment or hope The heart of this world At the end of its rope Twisting in circles Learning that it's all true But he's got to be ours And when will we 
never grow weary of this The extravagant hand or the merciless fist You play by our rules or you cease to exist And who will be next? All on the gallow Kadabi Losada Uribe Ugabe Kissinger Duvalier Cheney Gonzalez Negro Ponte next on the gallows. It's such a sad, sad story that we have all this killing. We've got a president who's a kind of a executioner president, and it hasn't seemed to work in our favor very much, has it? I don't know of any place where they've experienced a reduction in violent crime as a result of the death penalty. I know that in Canada, about, I think, 30 years ago, Canada decided to eliminate capital punishment, and they've had a steady decrease in violent crime since then. One good reason for that that is worth noting, which is if you don't say we're going to deal with violence by executing violent people, then you have to come up with another solution. And so for the last 30 years, Canada has been finding ways to reduce violence and to address violent crime in their society, and those ways have proven effective. In a way, the death penalty becomes a kind of short-circuiting of that process. One of the songs that I think that you've written that is a great antidote to the kind of negative feelings, it's one that touts a great success. I think I heard you in concert 25 years ago talk about this song and how it resulted from uh, your own facing a defeat. Is my memory correct? I may have quoted Cesar Chavez, who was an early part of my political education, and he said, we've had so few victories, we have to celebrate our defeats, is what he said. I think there was a a bit of of tongue-in-cheek in it, but it was a statement that stuck with me. I think that it can be discouraging for people who sort of set out with the idea of, well, in my lifetime I would like to see racial justice and economic justice and an end to war, and... I'd like to clean up the environment and reverse environmental degradation and all, all of the things that people who do take on a mission in life, they address these issues. And, you know, you think about Pete Seeger, who is approaching the age of 90, and all of his life he's been working for things, and, and there aren't so many things that he can point to and say, there, we've put that one to rest. We've gotten rid of that problem. I mean, it's not to gainsay what he's done as an activist. I mean, his, his, as a singer, he's done an enormous amount, but as an activist, he has been primarily responsible for reclaiming and cleaning up the Hudson River, but I don't think he would say the environment is better off today than it was when he first started his crusade, and I don't think he would say, although he's been a lifelong advocate for peace, that we're any closer to being a, a peaceful society than we were when we started. So you have someone like that who devotes their whole life to uh, uh, affirming life and affirming the goodness of the world, and you get to the end of your life and you have to ask yourself, you know, what have we really accomplished? 
I was really attracted to the story of The Hobbit because, for one thing, it's a victory story, and we need victory stories, and we need to be reminded of them. And, and also because it was not a victory story based on the might of armies. I was kind of angered by the Lord of the Rings movies because they were primarily battle movies. They were primarily these huge war scenes. And what I like about The Hobbit is that the turn of the story and the victory came not because of a mighty army or because of who had the greatest strength, but someone with a sense of mischief and integrity and someone who, in kind of quiet ways, stuck with a mission and won that mission in ways that are within all of our reach. We could all do what Bilbo Baggins did. We don't need a, a helicopter or an army or even a big stick. Well, it all started out at a party, they say. All the guests were invited by a stranger in gray. You were just a homebody, never tempted to stray. They were all for adventure. Bilbo, what would you say? Well, you would not say yes, but you would not say no. And somehow, in your heart, you just knew you would go. Oh, it wasn't their gold or their lust for the foe. But the time just seemed right at night so long ago. Yes, it did. So here's to you, Bilbo, for winning. My dragons are dragging me down. Oh, I guess it's all right just to fight the good fight. But a victory wouldn't hurt every once in a while. No, here's to you, Bilbo, for winning. For coming back home with the prize. Thanks to you, I'm recalling. The dragons are falling and the little folks everywhere. We're on the rise. Yes, we are. The way wasn't easy, or so I've been told. The journey was long, the nights were so cold. You were always fair game for the goblins and trolls. And at the end sat a dragon on a mountain of gold. What with wizards and dwarves and the elvish folk too, you did off a bit more than a hobbit and chew. And at the end of it all, there's a job you must do. Though most of them doubted that you'd see it through. But you did, so Here's to you, Bilbo, for winning. My dragons are dragging me down. Oh, I guess it's all right just to fight the good fight. But a victory couldn't hurt every once in a while. Oh, here's to you, Bilbo, for winning. For coming back home with the prize. Thanks to you. I'm recalling the dragons are falling and the little folks everywhere. We're on the rise. Yes, we are. The great dragon sits on his gold in his cave. There's a tiny old tunnel as dark as the grave. And in it, a hobbit 
with a mission to save. Oh, in all of your life, you were never so brave. With your great ring of power and your small elvish sword, you riddled the dragon, you burgled his horde, and you marked that one weak spot that the rest had ignored. Then you skipped off the daylight while the dragon fire roared. Now the dragon is dead, and his gold they divide. Though for pride and for greed, far too many had died. But the greatest of treasures was hidden inside of a hobbit who found it the one time he tried. Yes, he did. So here's to you, Bilbo, for winning. My dragons are dragging me down. Oh, I guess it's all right just to fight the good fight, but a victory couldn't hurt. Every once in a while, gold here's to you, oh, for winning, for coming back home with the prize. Thanks to you, I'm recalling the dragons are falling. And the little folks everywhere, we're on the rise. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. That was "Song for a Hobbit." Charlie King singing it. It's a beautiful song, a great inspirational one for us little folk. Which. You know, in a life of service, as you've done, uh, activism, you really do have to seize on even the little victories. You mentioned, when I was talking to you another time, that you've basically wanted to keep your income so that you don't have to be contributing to the war machine. Have you attempted to practice and live as a war tax resistor or in one form or another? In one form or another, and I've had mixed results. The way it started was during the Vietnam War, when I was working as an orderly, I found myself in the uncomfortable position of exempting my body from the war effort by being a conscientious objector and then supporting the war effort by paying taxes. So I withheld a portion of my taxes during the second year of my work as an orderly at a hospital doing CO service. And that kind of got me on the radar screen for the IRS. And they wrote and said, you know, well, you have to pay those taxes. And I wrote back and I said, well, I won't pay them and here's why. And, and eventually they just got tired of chasing me. I kind of dropped out of the economy in the sense that that job as a hospital orderly was the last salary job I ever had before I slipped into the dark realm of folk music. Once I started working as a folk singer, I just planned my income each year so that it would fall just short of the level at which I would have to pay taxes. And I was able to do that for years, and then I kind of, like lots of folks, I think, got sort of drawn into a higher income bracket. You know, the kids were going to college, and there were just more economic demands, and I I wasn't able to shoulder my part of that burden and still keep my income that low. So I went through a period of time where I was contributing to the tax system, and And now lately, the last few years, now that my kids have 
uh, college, I've been able to ratchet my income back down again. But I realize that I'm very fortunate to be living in a two-income family, to have my kids be grown up and off on their own. And uh, I know that it's a very difficult thing for people to limit their income. And I know other people that have taken a lot more riskier positions than I have and just flat out said, you know, never mind what I make. I don't believe in the way the government is spending our tax dollars and I'm not going to put in anything. Our government relies on quiet consent or apathy in order to function and keep doing the things it does. So anybody who stands up and says, wait a minute, let's take a look at what we're doing and let's change things and I'm willing to work and take risks commit civil disobedience, whatever, in order to uh, put the brakes on, I think are, they're on the side of the angels. I want to remind our listeners that you can always find out about Charlie King's music via his site. It's charlieking.org. He's not a com, he's an org. Or you can also find him via my website, northernspiritradio.org. Again, and you'll find a link to Charlie's site. I try and feature his music regularly on my Spirit in Action program because he's produced such wonderful music on a range of activist subjects. I've always sensed, Charlie, that you've had this spiritual thread that tied the whole thing together. It strikes me more so than with many people that you've got that thread, even though you don't usually explicitly name it. One of the things that I've thought over the years is that on the left, on, in liberal circles, sometimes being religious can almost give you a black eye, can be a reason for people not to want to connect with you. Have you experienced that at all? I just think that's a, a pretty established phenomenon, and it, it, it's not limited to the left wing. I mean, even it's a problem within the Democratic Party, for example, that for one reason or another, people feel like their religious convictions either are private or are too embarrassing to talk about in public. I think that that's had an impact on me, and it, it is true that not a lot of my stuff is explicitly religious. There's a way in which I'm perfectly comfortable about that. But I think also I have been kind of self-censoring because there is such a suspicion in this country, left of center, that to be religious is to be allied with the religious right. And so if you're upfront about your spirituality, or if your spirituality is explicitly a Christian, or explicitly Jewish, or explicitly Muslim, that that comes with a whole range of expectations that people say, oh, okay, I know what you're like, and I know what you think, and I know where you're going to fall on this issue. And so you do kind of invite a being typecast if you identify yourself with a particular religious tradition. So I, I, I have a lot of misgivings about any kind of self-censorship I've done around that. However, I, I have a, a, a history of being part of communities that meet for prayer and worship, and whenever I find myself in a religious setting and, and am asked to sing a song, I always prefer a secular song to a religious song. I don't know why, what purpose is served by sitting around in a group of religious people and singing, oh, I said a prayer and God loves me. I mean, you know, that's sort of like, okay, we can take that for granted. We'll give you that, you know, but what's going to really stretch us here and what's going to stretch us here is a song that talks about some kind of a secular reality, I think, so... Uh, I hope I've confused everybody here. It's a, it's a mixed bag whether or not you're going to sing 
professional religious material. Well, I think we have to end our conversation very shortly. And I'm just wondering if you've got a song that you'd like us to do on the way out. There's a song that probably has traveled farther than any other song I've written about two immigrants who lived where I lived in Massachusetts, and they were executed by the state of Massachusetts in 1927. Learning about them has been one of the big lessons in my life about bigotry, about animosity that can be generated against people because they're immigrants, and also about the nobility of work and labor and labor organizing. Their names were Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. Massachusetts has admitted that it was a miscarriage of justice that they were executed, so it's a reminder to me that capital punishment is a very dangerous practice and that there are heroic people in this world, and Sacco and Vanzetti were two heroes that need to be remembered. So that song, Two Good Arms, might be a good one to go out on. Sounds like a good idea to me. Two Good Arms, it's by Charlie King, and we'll use this to end today's Spirit in Action interview with Charlie King. Charlie, thanks so much for visiting with us today and for inspiring people nationwide and I think internationally to keep up the good work. Thanks. I'd like to think that was the case, and I appreciate all the thought you put into this interview, so I really enjoyed talking with you. And the song is Two Good Arms, Charlie King. Who will remember the hands so white and fine That touched the finest linen, that poured the finest wine Who will remember Genteel words they spoke To name the lives of two good men A new sense or a joke All who know these two good arms No, I never had to rob or kill I can live by my own two hands And live well And all my life I have struggled To rid the earth of all such crime Who will remember Judge Webster there One hand on the gavel The other resting on the chair Who will remember Hateful words he said Speaking to the living In the language of the dead All who know these two good are No, I never had to rob or kill I can live by my own two hands And live well And all my life I have struggled To rid the earth of all such crime Who will remember the hand upon the switch That took the lives of two good men In the service of the rich Who will remember 
one that gave the nod or the chaplain standing near at hand to invoke the name of God. This good shoemaker, we will remember this poor fish peddler. We will remember all the strong arms and hands that never once found justice in the hands that ruled this land, and all who knew these two good men. They never had to rob or kill. Each had lived by his own two hands, and they lived well. And all their lives they had struggled to rid the earth of all such crime. To rid the earth of all such crime. That was Charlie King's song, Two Good Arms, about Sacquin Vanzetti. And Charlie was my guest for today's Spirit in Action, joining us from his home in Massachusetts. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our